Interest rates up again, prices up still, household stress way up. Hilary Harper here for Life Matters. Hello. Charities around the country are seeing more and more people coming in, those with jobs and without. We'll look today at why this is happening, but also some options for coping. The macro and the micro of our economic landscape coming to you from the lands of the Kulin Nation. Are you feeling the pinch yet financially? The RBA has just increased interest rates for the ninth time in a row. They're trying to curb out-of-control inflation, but they expect that to continue into the months ahead. So prices could stay high for much of the year and there's a difficult road ahead for people with mortgages. There are some really interesting ideas on the Life Matters Facebook page at ABCRN about riding out the financial pressures of the moment. What about you? Have you changed the way you spend or some of your household habits? Tell us about that on Facebook. We'll have some tips and answers to your questions too so you can text in. Dr Isaac Gross is with us today. He's a lecturer in economics at Monash University and a former economist with the Reserve Bank of Australia. Isaac, welcome to Life Matters. Thanks for having me. And Peter Thompson, too, is a financial counsellor at the Financial Rights Legal Centre in New South Wales. He also works on the National Debt Helpline. Peter, great to have you with us as well. Uh, Good morning, Hilary. Thanks for having me. It's a really interesting topic, and I think these are two very useful perspectives to have today. Isaac, let's start with the the bigger picture. This has been going on for a while. Interest rates have been raised, I don't know, I've lost count how many times so far. Why is inflation still so high? Look, I think inflation's high for a number of reasons. Some of them are are pretty obvious. We've seen the war in Ukraine drive up energy prices and, and floods here at home that have pushed up food prices. But it's also true to say that the large amount of stimulus that got pumped out during the COVID-19 crisis has also increased demand in the economy. And so households are are now flush with cash and they're they're spending as well. So it's a range of factors. uh, And I think uh, that's why we're seeing inflation at such high levels. Can we get a bit more detail on the Ukraine issue, Isaac? We've just got a text saying, please don't let your guests simply say it's the war in Ukraine without explaining how a conflict on the other side of the world affects the cost of milk and eggs. I mean, energy prices seems like an abstract thing. Why does energy prices elsewhere affect us here in Australia? So the the primary way uh, the Ukraine invasion affects us is through the uh, price of natural gas. Um, So Russia is a big supply of natural gas, and that's been all but cut off uh, since the the war started. Uh, And so that means that the gas that we produce has also risen in price as people around the world start looking for alternative supplies, which we're one of. Uh, And that gas that we're now exporting at a a very uh, high price uh, means that the gas that we use domestically is now much more expensive. And and gas is an input into a whole range of goods, not only the gas you use to cook with at home, uh, but that uh, gas is used in Australian manufacturing firms that need to use really large quantities of energy to to heat up um, uh, in their manufacturing process. And so when energy prices rise, that can feed into all sorts of goods that you wouldn't have thought of as, you know, being especially tied to the energy sector, because energy is the one thing that everybody uses uh, at some point. So, Isaac, if prices are high, why is spending also high? I mean, that's the whole idea, isn't it, that we we uh, yeah. reduce that growth in the economy? Why isn't it working so far? 
Well, we've seen really high spending for a couple of reasons. The first is the large amounts of money that was pumped into the economy during the COVID-19 crisis, which was the right thing to do, but it's meant that we've got a lot of excess savings floating around, which means that households are, uh, are feeling flush with cash, or at least some households are, and they're spending it. We're seeing uh, record levels of retail spending, people going out and, and shopping for you know, clothes and food and, um, and entertainment goods. And that's part of the reason why demand is high. We're also seeing an incredibly low unemployment rate, around 3.5%, which uh, is the lowest it's been in decades. And that's also meant that, uh, you know, while it's obviously a good thing that we've got a low unemployment rate, it means that more people have more money in their pockets and they're spending that money. Peter Thompson, as a financial counsellor, seeing things, you know, at the CPI at its highest rate for 30 years, what are you seeing in terms of the kinds of people who are coming in to seek help? Look, there's a, a noticeable uptick in, in contacts to the National Debt Helpline. It's up about 28% from the same time last year, and there's an increased volume of people who are obviously feeling the pinch um, you know, with the increasing interest rates on their mortgage payments. And so we've heard uh, on RN Breakfast this morning about uh, charities around the country seeing mm. people come in who would never have come in before, people with jobs but not earning enough to actually cover their costs. Is that something you've noticed as well? Look, this is affecting the mortgage payments, really affecting the whole spectrum of income earners. So there are people who reach out on the NDH uh, helpline who are you know, households with very solid six-figure incomes uh, who are dealing with equally solid mortgages. So this is just not just the, the lower income sort of demographic. It, it's affecting you know, a broad cross-section across, uh, across the community. And as you're saying, people are now stretching to other forms of credit uh, just to put essentials on on the dinner table. So I mean, when we look at the the essentials versus discretionary thing, I've seen some commentators suggesting mm. that uh, the the boost to our COVID income and the fact that we saved uh, has created some poor financial habits. Peter, do you think we're out of practice with saving and spending responsibly? We've got some unrealistic lifestyle expectations now. I think that's there's a, there's a lot of truth in that, Hillary. I think a lot of a lot of households don't really have a really razor sharp idea of where each dollar of income that comes in goes out to, uh, particularly as regards discretionary expenses. And that's really the first step that people need to take when you're in an environment where they're going to have to start looking at their expenses, particularly discretionary expenses. Really important that the that, that, that borrowers out there and, and households that are under the pinch have a crystal clear idea of where their money is going to. And I don't think there has really been that discipline um, in many households over the, over the period of COVID. Yep, certainly the time like this brings a sharp focus to what constitutes a discretionary and an essentialist expense. We're speaking yes. with Peter Thompson, who's a financial counsellor at the Financial Rights Legal Centre in New South Wales, and he mentions the National Debt Helpline. That's a very useful number if you want some advice, one eight hundred double o seven double o seven. Am I right in that, Peter? That's correct, yeah. Excellent. The James Bond of helplines, I've heard it described as before, one eight hundred double o seven double o seven. And Dr Isaac Gross, a lecturer in economics at Monash University and a former economist with the RBA. Isaac, wage growth has stagnated too, which makes life harder for a lot of us, and the government wants to work on raising those wages. What impact will that have if, if done responsibly? So it depends on exactly how the government manages to get wages to tick up. If they can... To, uh, develop new policies that help make us more productive and help make us, um, you know, earn more by producing more, then it should have, you know, very little impact on inflation. Uh, on the other hand, if they just, um, 
push up wages, perhaps through the industrial relations system, then it's less likely, it's more likely to have an impact on inflation. So it's a bit of a careful balancing act. You want to push up wages as much as you can, but you want to make sure that there's an underlying productivity gain to back those higher wages up. And I think that's what the government's trying to do uh, with a number of its economic reforms. Peter Thompson, how much difference can it make to a low income household if those wages go up just a little bit? Oh, I think that the low-income households, in particular, they're right on the on the limit. So, for, the, the, for any household really which is paying out more than say 35, 40 percent of their disposable income, put the roof over their head, whether that's a mortgage or rent, then um, that they are right on the line there of financial stress. And so, just the tiniest increase in the amount of income that comes in. Um, make a real difference. That's never seemed to me to be a really useful indicator of mortgage stress, 35% of your disposable income, because if your disposable income's up in the tens of thousands of dollars, you know, if you're earning 200 grand a year, it's going to be a lot easier, isn't it, than if you're on the median of 70-odd? I think the RBA has what's called their 30-40 rules, and, and that is if you're take, spending out more than 30% of your disposable income and you own the bottom 40th percentile of... Um, income earners, then that's the indicator of stress. But you're right, for, for higher income households, they can afford to pay out um, you know, 50 60% potentially of their disposable income. Here's a text that I think sums up some of my feelings. I don't understand our economic system. We aim at growth and then there's too much and the Reserve Bank says everyone stop shopping. Huh? What? I just don't understand the rationale behind the grow, grow, stop thing. Uh, Isaac, are interest rates the only instrument we have to regulate inflation? Because it does seem a bit blunt at times. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, a good question your, uh, your listener asked. Look, they're not the only tool, but the other tools in our uh, macroeconomic toolkit are also imperfect. So a, another policy the government could try is to, to cut back on spending generally. But cutting back on spending you know, is, is often quite difficult. You don't want to cut spending on health, especially not these days. You don't want to cut spending on education uh, or even defence. Uh, and so that's a, also a pretty unpleasant series of, uh, you know, uh, items to consider. Uh, the alternative is you could try and raise taxes to try and sort of slow the economy a bit and, and stave off this inflation. But uh, raising taxes is also pretty unpopular, or, or so I'm told. Uh, and I think <laughs> it would be quite difficult for the government today to, you know, figure out which taxes to raise and by how much. And uh, all these tax and spending policies, the, the big downside to them is that they're slow. You know, the budget process only really happens once a year. Uh, and so if we were to wait for the government to, you know, change the budget, we'd probably be waiting, well, at least a couple of months till May before we even got a hint of what they were trying to do. Uh, and by then, you know, prices would keep on getting higher and inflation would keep on getting worse. A quick question about the grow, grow, stop idea that our text correspondent raised. Isaac, if discretionary spending goes down, won't that have a negative impact on some of the businesses that have already really struggled through COVID? Is there a lot of collateral damage involved here? Look, it's it's certainly a risk. Uh, but part of the reason why the Reserve Bank of Australia wants to slow aggregate spending in the economy is that uh, we're seeing really high levels of spending at the moment. Obviously, you know, the retail sector would have done it really tough during COVID. But I suspect when we get the final statistics in for, for last year, 2022 will seem like a bit of a bumper year with uh, record profits. So I think what the RBA really wants to do is to achieve that Goldilocks middle, somewhere better than being in lockdowns and COVID, but not quite as hot as what we've seen over the past six to 12 months. 
some really powerful texts coming in. One just says, 62% of my income on rent. I'm a solo mum of four. I work full time. My income $60,000 a year. I've done everything right to keep a stable home for my children. My mortgage of eight years isn't huge, 300 grand, but this recent rate rise leaves me with $1,000 a month to pay for everything else. I'm utterly beside myself about what comes next for my family if rates keep going up. It all comes down to me. I don't have the capacity to earn more money. There have to be other ways for the government and the Reserve Bank to address inflation. Surely continually hitting mortgage holders isn't the only solution. I mean, that is a really... Uh, difficult thing to hear, isn't it, Peter Thompson? And as a financial counsellor at the Financial Rights Legal Centre, mm. I imagine you hear stories like that quite frequently. Uh, not that specific mm. case, but if you do have a mortgage, what are some ways you could be preparing for interest rate hikes to come? Oh, look, get on the front foot, really. The, 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 any decrease in your mortgage rate is not likely to come from Phil low in the immediate term. It, it's likely to come from your own efforts. So for anyone out there who's on an uh, a less than competitive uh, mortgage rate. And remember the best variable rates out there now all start with a four. Um, for anyone who's not down in that territory, just get on the phone to your bank, see what they can do. Let them know your situation. Um, get on the phone to the National Debt Helpline, talk with a financial counsellor, explore your options. But really it's important that people just get on the front foot because as I say, that's their, the, the most immediate chance they've got of getting any relief in their mortgage rates going forward, I think. I was reading too, uh, Peter, how if you fill out a form, each, each bank has a differently named form that, that indicates to them that you're planning to leave and this is the bank you're planning to go to. That can be quite a kick up the bum for them and they might call you, in <laughs> fact. What about other debts, Peter? Is it true that adage that you know the, the, the mortgage is the most important one and you, to an extent the others you can uh, let slide a little bit? Look, it, it, many people think it's the highest priority expense, but it's not necessarily. And you'll find that some other creditors are not necessarily as accommodating as your lender. Um, strata management, for example, is, is one good example. So again here, just reach out and have a chat with a financial counsellor and they'll help you to prioritise which of the, the payments you've got to, got to make in, in, in which order. Uh, given your own situation. And what other ideas do you have, Peter, not just necessarily for mortgage but all the other household stresses? What kinds of things, for example, can we put on payment plans or or get a pause on? Oh, look, most, most licensed lenders and all the telcos and utilities, all of those have hardship departments and most of those, if you reach out to them and explain your circumstances, uh, they are usually willing to, to, to accommodate with payment plans. Um, for utilities and the like, there's obviously relief and, and subsidies in the form of EPA vouchers. But as what I say, vouchers, this all depends on reaching out. Sorry, what was the, the voucher that you mentioned? An EPA. What's that? You know, E-A-P-A. I knew you'd ask me what the acronym is. Uh, <laughs> program or whatever. I think $400 per six-month period is provided by the state. I'm, I'm talking about New South Wales, but most of the states have a similar uh, rebate program for to help people who are feeling the pinch with their energy bills, electricity or gas. Um, different states will all have different forms of rebate for for services like this. And again, it's a question of people just reaching out to find out what options and supports are available to them. Yep. And uh, Peter, what happens if you default on your mortgage repayments? I heard Anna Bly on RN Breakfast today saying that banks want to keep you in your home and foreclosure is a last resort. Does that bring some comfort? Look, it's a, it's a, exactly. It's a, it's a long, protracted process. 
the road to foreclosure. Banks, banks obviously want to do what they can to, to, to keep people in their homes. Um, if you do get a default notice, by all, that's absolutely a, a sign that you should reach out and get support if you need to. But as I say, it's, it's usually 60 days past due with a payment that the, that the default notice would be, be issued. And it's really important that people within that period of time uh, get on the front foot to, to assess what their options are. There are also some really good budgeting tools, aren't there? As you said earlier, Peter, uh, you know, as a financial counsellor, you've noticed that maybe people aren't so practised at working out where each dollar goes when it comes into the house. What's a good starting point for that? Oh, look, if they're so inclined, that the ASIC's Money Smart website's a very good starting point just to help people sit down. And, you know, look, you're right. Start with the low-hanging fruit. Start with the, the subscriptions for services that you, you, you don't don't use. Um, they get automatically deducted and you never see the, the money coming out of your account. Pull down, you know, two or three months' worth of bank statements and just have a look where your money's going through. Um, the drive-through fast food, whatever it happens to be. Um, most people are simply not fully aware of exactly where every dollar that they have is going out to. So it's a, it's a really instructive exercise to sit down and do that for your household. So you, you really know where you might potentially be able to make cutbacks. Isaac, when is all this going to end? I mean, you're a lecturer in economics at Monash University, Dr. Isaac Gross, and you're a former economist with the RBA. Can you look into your crystal ball and, and work out when rates are going to start coming down and when that pinch might ease a little? Look, the future is always uncertain, I think, in these times more than any other. But I think we've still got a couple more interest rate hikes to come, uh, at least two, maybe three. Uh, but there's a chance interest rates could start to to fall towards the end of the year. Uh, it's not certain, but it's possible. So I think if you're you know struggling with interest rate rises, uh, I, I think, as Peter said, it's good to get on the front foot and deal with it now because... Uh, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, uh, and any rate relief uh, is is not going to come at least for another six months, maybe longer. A very pithy question, Isaac, on text. Why do we need to keep growing the economy? I mean, is the answer to that, if we don't, we end up in a recession? It's a really big question, isn't it? Uh, I think that, that answer is essentially correct. You know, if we didn't grow the economy, I mean, that's almost the definition of a recession. Uh, and, you know, that would be pretty average for most Australian households. It would mean you wouldn't get, you know, an increase in your wages. You wouldn't be able to uh, buy new things or have, you know, newer hospitals, newer schools with a, an economy that doesn't grow. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, sometimes it can seem like an abstract concept, this economic growth, but it's the foundational force that drives all our improvements of standard of living. And I think... Uh, we'd be uh, we'd miss it if it wasn't here. That's for sure. Lee's texted in from Saratoga. She says, "Hi, Hillary. I work in health services. I have never been more productive or worked harder in my life, and I'm in the last decade of my working life. I'm tired, of, so tired of hearing the productivity argument. Productivity has grown over the last ten years, but wages haven't. Workers want and need their share now. That's on the issue of wages growth. And uh, Isaac, you mentioned earlier the unpopularity of taxation as a, an instrument <laughs> of economic change." Uh, one text says using taxation to quell inflation is a much better thing, but the government is too gutless to do it. If you want to affect everyone across the board, raise the taxes so they can do it in a week. They just haven't got the gas. And here's a final question for you, Isaac. House prices, says Bill, way back then might have been very different to now, but so were wages. He says, at the height of the interest rates, boomers paid on average over 40% of their average wage on mortgage. It's nowhere near that now. What's your thought, Isaac, on the relative difficulty of servicing a mortgage now and then back in, say, the 70s or 80s, when interest rates were really high? Yeah, look, 
it's always hard to compare, uh, you know, buying a house across different periods of time because so many things are different. You've got different prices, different wages, different interest rates. I think on balance, if you did buy a house back in the 80s, uh, as my parents did, you were probably pretty lucky to do so. Uh, you were able to afford you know, a house much closer to the city, for example. And while interest rates were high in the 80s, they did come down pretty quickly after that in the 90s. And so you, you might have you know, been paying off a, a steep interest rate initially, but that interest rate came down and the value of your property you know, skyrocketed in response. So... Uh, at least with retrospect, we can say it was definitely a, uh, a pretty great decision to have bought a couple of decades ago. Um, obviously, for any individual case, it can always vary. You know, even if the average household is better off today uh, today than they were previously, um, there will always be some people who, either through bad luck um, or bad choices, didn't end up with the uh, the you know the, the the best outcomes. So, look, it's always important to uh, keep in mind that. Even though most Australian households are sort of doing well today, uh, there's always going to be some households that are struggling and the government needs to think about those households when it's formulating policy. Yes, indeed. And as we heard, the ASIC Money Smart website has some really great ideas on it and a helpful budgeting tool and the National Debt Helpline, which can give you some of the ideas that uh, Peter Thompson's been discussing today, is 1800 007 007, wherever you are around the country. Dr Isaac Gross and Peter Thompson, thank you both so much for your time today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Dr. Isaac Gross is a lecturer in economics at Monash Uni and a former economist with the RBA. And Peter Thompson is a financial counsellor at the Financial Rights Legal Centre in New South Wales. He does work on the National Debt Helpline as well. A few people on Facebook who feel like it feels like they've been in this situation before. Uh, Francis says, I'm eliminating waste. I now make great salads with whatever needs using, including fruit. Uh, Catherine says, I'm uh, making patchwork out of my old clothes to make clothes that do fit me. And Makita says, I'm going back to my uni student diet for a while. Boring, but cheap and healthy. Big batch of veggie and lentil soup once a week, freezing it into portions. I might lose some weight in the process, she says. Thanks for your thoughts on this topic today. Up next, a scientist falls in love with a rainforest and tries to grow it back. You're going to hear that story from her next and find out how she's restoring vital biodiversity in Queensland. Oh, hi, Richard Feidler here. Just popped into the office a little early to move the conversation's bookshelf a little bit over this way. This year, with Drive kicking off from four, we're tweaking the times in the afternoon and conversations will start just a little earlier after the 2pm news. Philip Adams is starting earlier too. Late Night Live will be after the 3pm news. Oh, and you can hear us anytime on the ABC Listen app. Australian colonial settlers have a long history of cutting down forests and clearing land for farming and other commercial activities. We know more now how destructive that is and what effect it's had on the natural environment, as well as the ongoing effects of the dispossession of the traditional owners. Scientist Dr Penny Van Osterzee and her husband Noel have spent many years now regenerating rainforest on their property, a chunk of land in the Atherton Tablelands of far north Queensland called Theakee. And that led Penny, who's also an adjunct professor at James Cook University, to research the history of the land and the people who've lived on it. The resulting book is called Cloud Land, the dramatic story of Australia's extraordinary rainforest people and country. Penny Van Ostersee, welcome to Life Matters. Good morning, Hilary. How are you? Good. Tell us what brought you to Theakey in the first place. Was it a, a long association with the area? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I spent most of uh, my working life in the Northern Territory 
and we were in Darwin and it was just too hot. So we, I was looking around for a place to, to go to and this came up on the internet. It was as simple as that. And when you visited it, it sounded like one look out the window was all it took. Yeah, it's a, it's a property on the headwaters of the Johnston River on the very top of a, something called the Melanda Volcano. And we walked into the back of a house and you couldn't actually see the rainforest. And there were huge windows when we walked in the door and there was this jungled landscape. Um, and it was look, looked like it was just blowing shapes of clouds into the air. And it seemed like it was alive. And that was it. We were in love. Yep, you and your husband exchanged glances. All right, better buy it then. And that's why it's called the cloud forest as well, that particular kind of landscape. What kinds of animals live there, Penny? Well, we, we're in an upland rainforest, so Thiaki has is a hotspot for all the ringtail possums and lemuroid tree kangaroo and 13, all 13 of the endemic wet tropic birds. And some of them have been there for a really long time, haven't they? You did some research into the oldest species and, and how many of them are still around. What did you find? The rainforest itself is Gondwanan in a way. Um, what happened was when Australia moved away from Antarctica, the rainforest, it was a rainforested landscape and the rainforest kept track of, of, of its environment. And to do that, it actually needed to go up mountains. And in the wet tropics, we're... The rainforest is in, in the highest mountainous part of the of the of the uh, of Queensland. We're speaking with Dr. Pe- Penny Van Osterzee, who uh, acquired, loved, researched, and is reforesting part of this forest uh, landscape in far north Queensland. Penny, it sounds breathtakingly beautiful, but as you describe so powerfully in the book, it also has its hazards. Tell me about the first time you had a little uh, stroll around the property and, and discovered some of these. <laughs> Actually, one of the hazards is doing this interview. I'm standing out <laughs> in a raincoat because we're in a black spot in terms of our reception and the only place I can get a good reception is outside here. So it's it's raining, it's misty. <laughs> so even day-to-day life is a bit of a hazard. Yeah, but that, that time, you know, I was naive to Australian rainforests, just like uh, most people are. And like I'd come from the savannas and before that the desert, we bought this place and I thought, oh, let's just follow the boundaries. The boundaries go through some of the densest rainforests in the wet tropics. <laughs> and we ended up crashing through forest and I found this little uh, waterhole. It was muddy because the neighbour had been logging and so there was sediment in it. But I thought, oh, no, it's our own little waterhole. So I took off all my clothes and thought that I would just step in it would be a rocky base but of course it was just sediment and I sank down to my stomach and it was disgusting and (laughs) I clambered out sat down on a log of course it's what you think you're going to do you sit down on a log but here Siaki has attitude and the forest uh, had a sort of uh, you know, an army of mites that craw- crawled up me, but you can't see them. They're tiny little things. And I had hundreds and hundreds of these little mite bites uh, when, by the time I got back home. Oh, and we'll just leave the whole the whole subject of ticks to one side as well because there are some terrible tick stories in your book as well. Cloudland, it's called, but it's so much more than a collection of interesting stories about this land. It goes way back in time. And also, Penny, you talked to the traditional owners of that land that you now live on. What did you learn from them? 
the well, it's a, it's a not a happy story. Uh, the traditional owners were displaced from the land pretty pretty quickly, and um, it took a bit of time to find them. And we spent I spent a lot of time with with the old people, with some old people, Ernie Raymond, and also the younger generation of people, and. What I found out from them was that Europeans really didn't bother at all to document how traditional peoples lived on the land. And traditional peoples knew the land like the back of your hand. They knew what to eat, how to look after it, how to manage it. Um, and that was never documented. Uh, and that was just such a tragedy. Well, and you learnt too how the creation stories uh, that the traditional owners have about some of the uh, volcanoes in the area tally with the geological record, don't they? There is one uh, known creation story of of the Crater Lakes uh, of the Atherton Tablelands. And because of the long memory of traditional owners, that last volcanic eruption happened about 10,000 years ago. And there are stories of that. So there are stories of of the volcano erupting, and it was to do with boys who were who were who were becoming men, and they they weren't allowed to go out of out of the camp, and they did go out of the camp, and as a result, um, the volcano erupted in fury, and so those stories have come down to us today. So that just talks to the long long memory of of Aboriginal people on land. Well, and as you write, it was a bit of a shock to Aboriginal people who came back to the land that you're on after farming had wrought its changes. What happened to the rainforest when farming began there? Well, the rainforest was cleared. It's, it wasn't actually an easy task to clear rainforest. It was this absurd policy of the time of a, a yeoman's ideal of, you know, small, close farms, happy, smiling homesteads, plump wives and, you know, rosy-cheeked children. But, of course, this place, you know, isn't suited to that. So people spent decades clearing the rainforest and then trying to establish industries such as dairy, which failed. Um, and so much of the Atherton and Tablelands and those areas cleared just fell to weeds. And it was really only in the last part of the last century where amalgamation of small enterprises took place that any industry actually made any money. So it was cleared almost for nothing. And red cedar was a big industry for a period of time, wasn't it? A very brief period in geological time. How did that affect the land? The It was like a gold rush. There were just uh, men mainly who, who just wanted to earn money and they were a rough and tumble lock, uh, lot and they came up to the Atherton Tablelands which was the last place where we had the red cedar and they just took every red cedar they could, they chopped it down and because you couldn't actually get it to the coast, there wasn't a railway here at the time, most of the red cedar just lay in the forest rotting. So again it was a, another bad policy, bad ideology that led to the destruction not only of the rainforest people but the very rainforest itself. Yeah, you're right about some of the very nasty interactions between the people working the land, the settlers working the land and the traditional owners as well. I mean, this is such a well-rounded story, this book Cloudland that uh, Dr Penny Van Osterday has written. She's an adjunct professor at James Cook University uh, and has been working on this patch of land in the Atherton Tablelands, trying to reforest it. Penny, how was forestry, shall we say, managed in Queensland during the 20th century, especially? Because that was a big time for clearing, wasn't it? 
Well, the forests needed to be cleared. That was the, the ideology of the time. So forestry was an incidental industry. Uh, and like I said, with the, with the cedar, it was just cleared and left to rot. But when the railway came in the 1905 or 1910, logging became a, a lucrative industry and, and logs were taken out of the forest. Um, and what happened as time moved on, the forest was to be cleared for industry. So the idea was never to conserve the forest. And then there was this large debate, uh, fight almost, between foresters who had become an industry in the middle part of last centuries who said that forestry was actually a livelihood and you should actually keep the forest and those closer settlement advocates who said, no, we've got to clear it. And there was a Royal Commission in 1931 which determined that there were actually too many trees, so we had to clear the forest. Wow. Uh, no, it was it was a pretty scary time, um, and at the time they set the the quota for, for for logging mills at the maximum amount that you could take logs, and that became the sustainable quota. <laughs> Nothing sustainable about it. So you had one thousand three hundred mills taking as many logs as they could. So it was a, a pretty horrific time until 1988 when it became World Heritage. Well, yes, and you write about this long and very uh, smart uh, protest movement that eventually resulted in that. But was that problem solved for the forest once logging stopped in 1988? Does it all just grow back? No, no. Um, the forest that's conserved is largely that in steep on steep country and in, in the mountainous part. So that area that could be cleared for for crops has been cleared, has been cleared, and uh, it's been a really difficult task to actually bring it back. So what we got was a 50 hectare paddock. Plus we've got 130 hectares of intact forest and 50 hectares of paddock, and we looked at it and we decided, well, you know, it's hard to clear it, but how the hell do you bring it back? So we decided to actually look at a cost-effective way of doing that. There's been very little money given by government for grants. And so the new way, perhaps, of restoring land is through carbon trading. And so what we're trying to do is look at very cost-effective ways of bringing the forest back. Well, yeah. I mean, what, what are they? Because I've heard figures bandied about of up to $60,000 a hectare to reforest. What did you come up with? Uh Less than that, much less than that. <laughs> we can do it for about eight to five thousand uh, dollars a hectare um, by actually using the agency of the forest itself. So we create a framework for the forest to use to re-establish. So it, it it has some agency itself. Also, what we what we've done is reduce the amount of pesticide use, um, space trees a little bit further apart than the method used up here and um, make sure that you could only plant in wet ground. So much of the work is really common sense. And if you use that common sense approach, you can actually bring the price right down and it becomes very cost effective to trade carbon. It's more cost effective to do that on flatter ground than it is uh, to, to graze cattle, for instance. So, Penny, what does the Aki look like now compared to when you moved in? Oh, it's completely different. When we moved in, you looked down the main valley and it was completely cleared. Um, and now it's a forest. And I'm looking at a slope now that's, that's growing up against the main remnant and it's, it's actually hard to tell the difference between that planted forest and the intact forest behind. So that's, um, 
I've act- we, we do have cattle and I've got some moving towards me um, and, uh, and they are grazing on the flatter ground where it is a little bit cost effective to have cattle and the forest on the steeper ground. And so we have a mixed economy uh, and it's an example of the sorts of economy that we have to move toward. Well, yeah, how urgent is it, Penny, that we get some certainty on a carbon price in Australia if more people are going to be moving towards doing this sustainably on their properties too? I think we're getting certainty now with the new policy announcements by by the current government. Uh, Particularly, I I don't really want to go into detail of policy because it's a little bit complicated, Mm -hmm. but we have a a safeguard mechanism where large corporations have to reduce their carbon and sometimes they can't. And so they have to buy offsets. And this is an example of an offset. So the price is going to go up to $75 reasonably quickly. And at that price, it becomes very lucrative to plant trees and sell carbon. But what we've tried to do is make sure that the carbon also has biodiversity benefits. Yes. Yeah, it's really interesting reading through your book and seeing that it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling about bringing back some uh, some greenness to the slopes. It's a huge range of impacts and benefits across the board. Dr Penny Van Osterzee, thanks so much for telling us a little bit about your little bit patch of cloud forest. Thanks very much, Hilary. Thanks for weathering the rain. Dr Penny Van Osterzee, adjunct professor at James Cook University and author of Cloudland, this book about her uh, property on the Atherton Tablelands. Up next, try to eat more fibre, getting a bit of exercise. We do lots of different things to try and boost our gut health. Getting more friendly with bacteria, though? A new game dealing with the ick factor on Life Matters. Would you crack open a board game called Gooey Gut Trail? That could make family gatherings a bit interesting, couldn't it? But many of us are a bit under-informed when it comes to the workings of our digestive systems. Gut health is about lots more than just what you eat. And this new board game shows us some of the latest science on getting good bacteria into you in a fun way. Nandini Pasamathi is a user experience researcher at RMIT and she created the Gooey Gut Trail game. Nandini, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Now, one of the big things people learn from playing the game is that having fun can be good for your gut health. How does that work? Um, we all know that, uh, you know, it, firstly, board games bring people together. And uh, when people get together, they are bound to have a lot of fun. And when you're interacting with uh, tools uh, and the game components, it's bound to bring up a whole range of conversations and uh, having fun and having a good laugh is great for your health. Really? Okay, so that can filter down to your gut as well, just having fun and having a laugh. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, your your microbiome is always listening on you. <laughs> great. You know, you know it's little just spy. picking on all of your emotions. So, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. I loved the little the little meeples, the little <laughs> tokens that you created oh. and I think made in your house to use in this game. They're That's very true. cute. Thank you. I laughed at them. Uh, Nandini, what else does the game teach us about the good and bad things that we can do for our gut? Um, so, firstly, it uh, tries to bring around all of the different factors that influence our gut health. Now, we all know that diet is the major factor that influences our gut health, but uh, we're not that aware of the other factors such as physical activity, you know, stepping outdoors, interacting with soil and plants. Um, 
breathing fresh forest air and uh, exchanging microbes with each other when we step out to public spaces when we you know are out there just in the wilderness going on a country road trip maybe you know and uh, and so the board game tries to bring all of these factors uh, through the real world scenarios you know through which we experience it yes we may go out and do a workout every now and then we may go out and do all of these activities but we don't know what it's doing for our gut health and uh, bringing all of these and uh, distilling them into fun interactions through the game uh, it helps you know to bring a certain perspective of uh, you know their everyday activities through a different lens i like how it's sneaky too because you're saying that bringing people together is good for your gut health and i'm just going to bring you together over this <laughs> game where you have to be on opposite sides what is going on there do you, is there something about do you, are we breathing microbes on each other how close do we have to get <laughs> um i'm not sure of uh, you know if i can tell you how close we must get but i we do know that uh, you know when we are sitting next to each other or when we are spending time when we go visit a friend's place we are in constant interaction with each other through this layer of microscopic you know uh, beings that are there around us wow. and for the most part they're mostly beneficial beings that are always trying to help us and uh, you know bring order in the body it's just a very small quotient of them that probably would uh, create a you know issue for you and there are few i would call them uh, you know the ones sitting on the bench <laughs> they are the double agents they can either fall the good way or the bad way depending on how good you know uh, your everyday lifestyle is and if you're not taking care of your gut health then it's quite possible that this third you know group of the ones they might just fall into the pathogenic and they might just increase uh, you know uh, bring about a dis- uh, an imbalance in your gut yeah interesting so good bugs bad bugs and sitting on the fence bugs i'm glad i don't have to kiss anyone when i'm playing this board <laughs> game we can just kind of be there together <laughs> we're speaking with nandini pasumathi who's a user experience researcher at rmit university in melbourne and she created this uh, board game called the gooey gut trail where you have fun and laugh and share your microbes in a healthy way but you also learn things about good gut health. And one of your co-researchers, Nandini, is Jessica Danaher. She's a dietitian and a senior lecturer in nutrition at RMIT. Jessica, welcome. Thanks, Hilary. Now, uh, you're a clinical dietitian and a nutrition scientist, and we heard from Nandini that diet is a, an important thing when it comes to gut health. How big a role does it play compared to other factors? Oh, a huge role. There are other factors that will play a substantial role as well, but diet is something that is in our control. Most people are eating, say, three meals a day. So we've got all of these opportunities to make sure that we're replenishing our good bacteria in our, in our gut, uh, feeding the good bacteria or, or growing new bacteria. We were discussing in the office before how you meant to get 30 different kinds of vegetables a week because we've heard this figure is, you know, leads to better health. What's going on there? Well, look, as long as people are trying to get some diversity in their diet, you can aim for 30 if you want to. I think that that's a little bit ambitious. Uh, but aiming for at least five serves of vegetables a day and two serves of fruit, but also even legumes and, and whole grain foods. All of these types of foods will provide us with what we call prebiotics, which feed the, the good bacteria in our gut. So it's a way of of feeding these good bacteria, but also getting diversity will just help you get more nutrients. That's good for 
good health anyway. And that's not just going to make your tummy a bit more comfortable, is it? it there's the gut-brain axis, which affects our moods. Tell me about that. How does yeah, that work? Yeah, so look, we've always known that there's been a connection between the brain and the gut. So for years, that we've understood that the brain would tell the gut things like, you know, are you hungry? How do you, should you digest food and metabolise food? And even when you're stressed, people, you know, might run to the toilet and get what we call nervous poos. But it works the other way as well, and that's something that more in science we're becoming we're getting to understand over the particularly the last decade that an imbalance in your gut bacteria can also feed signals up to your brain. So uh, there has been links established now to things like. Uh, mood states, anxiety, depression, and even some more research coming out on whether that will impact uh, migraines and influence that sort of uh, neurological problems as well. So having better gut health can make you happier and having poor gut health can make you sadder. Yeah, absolutely. Misery guts is actually true. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Wow. Um, So are medical practitioners in Australia, Jessica, beginning to recognise this interaction more and, and help people who've got problems? In their guts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one way that that can be done is by looking at how uh, diet can play a role. So, speaking with people like accredited practicing dietitians about how to improve diet to therefore uh, have that impact on, on mood states in particular. It's becoming something that that is more commonly used. Something that is also being trialled in medical treatments isn't so mainstream right now is actual faecal microbiome transplant, so otherwise known as a poo transplant. Uh, and the idea there is that you can colonise uh, a, a bad gut bacteria or a bad gut health using uh, the donor poo of a healthy, healthy person. So that has been shown in research to actually have beneficial uh, effects on it, on things like depression and anxiety, as well as other gut health problems. You've got to be careful with it, though, don't you? You've got to make sure that there's uh, nothing going on in the other person's poo that could be detrimental because it can swing both ways. Exactly. So, uh, you know, not not any poo is taken for, for this. I think you have to meet a certain range of, of, of criteria to actually be a, a be a donor. Uh, I believe there's a, there's a place in Sydney where you can actually go and donate your poo and I think you get paid for it as well. So oh, maybe <laughs> any listeners uh, that, you know, are up for a, a side hustle, maybe, maybe it might be for you. Wow, that's the end times, isn't it? <laughs> Being paid to deliver your poo to a little place in Sydney. We're speaking with Jessica Danaher, who's a dietitian and senior lecturer in nutrition at RMIT University, and Nandini Pasimathi, who's a user experience researcher at RMIT University, uh, about gut health, because it's Gut Health Month, but also this board game, Gooey Gut Trail. Um, Jessica... One of the other things that's good for your gut health is exercise. What role does that play? Well, exercise can help uh, increase the transit time in which your your stool is in your gut. And then that increase can help or as decrease? well. In- increase. Increase. Oh, so, so it you- takes longer to come out. Um, no, you, um, oh, sorry, decrease, decrease okay. the transit, transit time. So um, that time by which it passes will, will yet um, become smaller as opposed to it sort of sitting in your gut. Uh, that That's caused by helping with the blood flow to that area. But exercise can also alleviate stress as well. And we know that stress is associated with, with poor gut health. Um, so that's another way in which it can, can help. Yes, indeed. And it makes you feel happy too, which has got to help, you know, that gut-brain axis. Nandini, what does the board game say about exercise? Uh, for adults as well as for children? Um, So the board game introduces uh, you to the different activities that you can do. Um, So in terms of physical activity, you you can only go for a jog. Uh, You can do qigong, flow flow activities uh, that allows you to reduce your stress. Um, Swimming. uh, I mean, there are a whole bunch. Pilates, yoga, there are a whole bunch of activities that you can do. And uh, it 
allows people, the board game allows people to view their physical activity through the lens of the microbiome and what they're doing for their gut health. I think that's the most important part because I had uh, participants who mentioned that we all know we do some of these activities, but now to know that it actually is good for my gut health, now it would make me want to go out and do these more often and would make me want to go out, step outdoors and, you know, be more active. Yeah, so. I'm feeling quite protective about my microbiome now. I want yeah. to help it in any way I can, particularly if it's going to affect my mood. What about the, the playing in dirt thing? Because kids do that as a matter of course anyway. How useful is that for gut health? Oh, very. <laughs> I would say, um, so approximate figures, I would say a tablespoon of, uh, you know, soil contains about uh, 50 billion microorganisms, of which about you have 30,000 30, different species. So um, imagine what that could really do for your gut health, because you are getting the friends outside to speak to your friendly biome inside. And there's this exchange that is happening every time we go out to do a gardening activity, or you have uh, kids who roll around in sand and mud, and they come and they hug you. And so there's this layer of interaction that is always happening and uh, I think it's just a matter of us tuning in and being a little more empathetic to what we can do because they're already doing their job and we just need to help it you know so I think it's a kind gesture that we can do for them. Well yeah I'm feeling quite relieved that the dirt exchange that I do with my kids every day is actually beneficial to me and to them hopefully. Yeah as long as you're washing your hands right before you eat. (laughs) Yeah well does that mean that we need to be encouraging adults to get their hands dirty more? Yes absolutely. Are we out of that habit now? Very much we live in very sterile environments we're constantly cleaning our indoors and uh, yeah Mm -hmm. people. Sure we are yep we definitely do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jessica Tell us a little bit more about the the microbiome. What does it actually mean, that term? Well, the microbiome comprises of of trillions of bacteria and microorganisms. We know that there are over a thousand bacteria and that that number's not even set in stone. We're finding out there's more that have different roles all the time. When it comes to particular types of of gut bacteria, some that might cause health problems for one person might vary uh, to to another. So there's still a lot to to understand when it comes to the gut microbiome and what bacteria in particular might be of, of concern. We've had a question pop in from Paddo in Sydney on the text message line. Jessica, I think this one's for you. Can you comment on a recent RN program guest's advice to start a meal with a glass of water into which a tablespoon of vinegar is inserted and then start eating with green veg first? Does the vinegar create undue acid in the gut? Uh, What long-term effects might there be? Sorry, that's Esther from Paddo in Sydney. Uh, I, like I'm not too sure about about that advice in particular. When it comes to anything that's really um, meant to change the pH of, of your body, look, it's a bit of a myth. Uh, your your body is well tuned to regulate its own pH, so the the stomach is an acidic environment anyway. Uh, the the blood is a bit more alkaline, the, and, and you, you can't really change that. The the pH in which all those different aspects of your body sits are in well tuned, well regulated environments. So I wouldn't be using a, a food hack to try to manipulate the pH of, of the body, uh, eating a well-balanced diet with fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, you know, that will help itself uh, regulate its own pH. Yeah, yep. and dentists say it's really bad for your teeth too, lemon juice or vinegar in water first thing in the morning as well. Uh, Nandini Pasamathi, as a designer, how did you go incorporating, you know, some quite complex science about gut health into a fun bo- board game? 
quite a lengthy process, but I'll try to simplify it for you. Um, so we've, first, there was a mapping of all of these factors that was done, um, literally mapped out all of the factors and then went into individual factors, uh, age, diet, uh, genetics, lifestyle. And then uh, we wanted to bring it down to everyday experiences because that's the way that we could connect to the people that are playing the board game. Uh, just highlighting them as factors weren't going to help. So, and then we distilled that further down. We looked at academic literature, scientific literature, and uh, distilled it down to an everyday experience. And uh, then we brought it into the board game and then we working out what sort of mechanics might work. Should we make it competitive? Should we make it collaborative? And, you know, one thing led to another and yeah, it, it was an iterative design process. So we went back and forth on many of our decisions and it was a six to eight month yeah. uh, development. But the end result was that it won, it was a finalist in the Victorian Premier's Design Award. Oh, so congratulations. Right. Thank you. And I understand too that uh, it's been quite effective. It's It's been shown to be effective at teaching people about gut health, which is the, the point of the whole thing. Uh, Jessica Danaher, just quickly and finally, as a dietitian working in hospitals, I imagine this is you know something you have to talk to people about uh, pretty frequently, their poo. Is that getting less confronting for people because it used to be quite kind of seen as, as quite a an impolite thing to do. Definitely in a hospital setting, it's very normalised. But in the community, I guess talking about tummy issues and gut health issues is becoming more more normalised. Uh, there is Gut Health Month, uh, as you alluded to earlier. That is an initiative run by Nutrition Connections. Uh, and at the moment, they've even got on their website these fantastic recipes and resources for good mood food, uh, how to check in with your poo, and um, what to do if you are having tummy trouble. So that is a, a great place to go get information. And there there's even, even a, um, a little town in Victoria in South Gippsland who has recently jumped on this bandwagon. Poo Wong has recently changed their name to Poo Right just for the month, just for Gut Health Month. Fascinating. I myself am celebrating by doing my biannual <laughs> bowel test kit. It's a barrel of laughs, but I know it's doing me good. So that's the main thing. Look, Jessica Danaher and Nandini Pasamathi, thanks so much for coming in and telling us about this, about some gut health issues, but also about the gooey gut trail board game. Great. Thanks for having us, Hilary. Great. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. That's it for the moment on Life Matters. I'm going off to eat some fibre-rich veggies now in a bid to boost my gut health and live longer. As we get older, though, some of us get more confused and then we worry that we're developing dementia. But we could just be confused about dementia. It's quite a poorly understood condition. On our next episode, we will break down the latest dementia research for you and hear some stories about living with the condition too. I'm Hilary Harper. I hope you can join me then. 